Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. We're proud to be the number one business radio show globally for entrepreneurs. And it's only two days before Christmas. What a fantastic day today's been. U.S. growth last quarter at 5%. I mean, that's almost up there with China. It's an extraordinary number. Dow's over 18,000. Christmas sales are excellent due to high consumer confidence and the low gas prices. Sony backs down and will release the interview in independent theatres across the US on Christmas Day. North Korea's had their internet shut down. (laughs) And we're all getting revitalised for 2015. And 2015, particularly here in the US, is going to be a sensational year for everybody, for entrepreneurs and for business generally. As you know, this program's all about helping entrepreneurs to be successful. So if you're a person who'd love to be an entrepreneur, but you're not quite got enough guts to get out there and do it, you know, you worry about that weekly paycheck and you think, oh, geez, you know, I might risk it all. Well, if you think you've got an idea that will make people's lives better, go for it. Get out there. Do it. Make a commitment. Work really hard and give it a go. And if you're sitting there thinking, should I do it now or should I wait? There's never any time like the present. Go and do it. Now, last week, I applauded the advent of smart guns, which are coming, not before time. And, of course, the NRA, well, they're against smart guns. They're actually against anybody that's intelligent or even smart. Now, you'd expect the NRA to not like smart guns because they don't like anyone or anything smarter than they are. And judging by their behaviour of the last 20 years or so, they are just plain fucking dumb. Anyway, I copped a fair bit of flack for those comments, and as you would expect, most of the emails supporting the NRA looked like they were written by an illiterate, irrational child. So, give it your best shot. We don't care. Guns are stupid. They kill 44,000 people a year. When's this country ever going to wake up? Now, lawyers for a plethora of artists have demanded removal of 20,000 videos from YouTube. Lawyers for dozens of superstars, including Pharrell Williams, The Eagles, and John Lennon, are telling YouTube that it had better remove about 20,000 videos or face a $1 billion lawsuit. Woo! $1 billion. That's a lot. Of course, it's not a lot to YouTube, but it's a lot. The new legal group, Global Music Rights, has told the video juggernaut that it does not have performance rights to thousands of songs by about 40 of its clients, including the Eagles, Chris Cornell, John Lennon, Pharrell Williams. It just goes on and on. Meanwhile, Google is planning to launch Music Key, which is its own subscription music service, and that'll compete with Spotify and Pandora, etc., And apparently, it does have the rights, prompting concerns of a music industry showdown. 
And, uh, you know, it's about time that the artists got what they deserved. The threat of a lawsuit against YouTube, it, it, it's happening amongst a broader debate about the rights of musicians in a freewheeling era of digital access to songs. To put it plainly, artists are getting ripped off. You know, Consequence of Sound reported that Pharrell Williams' mega hit, Happy, got 43 million plays on Pandora. 43 million plays, and for that, Pandora paid him 2,700 bucks. Now, that is just bloody obscene. It's not just a rip-off, it's criminal, and it's about time they do something about it. So I hope the artists win. Now, as I guess we all know, mobile's growing faster than all other digital advertising formats, and uh, advertisers are allocating, I mean, now they're seriously allocating dollars to catch the eyes of a growing class of mobile-first users. Historically, you know, there's been this big disparity between the amount of time people actually spend on their smartphone and tablets, which is very significant and growing very rapidly, and the amount of ad money that was being spent in the medium, which by comparison is still pretty tiny. But it's expected that this gap's going to narrow substantially as enthusiasm grows for mobile-optimised ad formats, such as interactive rich media and native ads, as targeting improves and more and more advertisers learn how to effectively use the platform. I think that's the biggest problem, that most advertisers are not quite sure how to use the platform. Now, it's anticipated the US mobile ad spend... It is anticipated (laughs) that the US mobile ad spend will top nearly $42 billion in 2018 rising by a five-year compound annual rate of 43%. That's pretty healthy growth by anybody's um, measure. Display and video will be the fastest-growing mobile ad formats as digital ad dollars quickly shift from desktop to mobile. And, of course, ad products will continue to improve. US mobile display ad revenues will grow at an astonishing compound annual rate, I mean, this number's amazing, of 96%. And mobile video ad revenues will grow at a pretty equally impressive 73% between now and 2018. Search is a strong format on mobile, of course, because of its convergence with local mobile targeting. So mobile mobile programmatic... Ad revenues, including ads sold through real-time bidding, are going to account for 43% of US mobile display-related ad revenue by 2018, up from only 6% in 2013. So an increase from 6% to 43% in just five years. In-app mobile ads perform much better than mobile web ads, and ad spend will likely follow performance and usage. Fair enough. In-app click-through rates averaged 0.56% globally compared with 0.23% for mobile web ads during the first half of this year. So at least in the foreseeable future or until someone creates a better format, mobile is the future and advertisers know it. It's so convenient, isn't it? 
I mean, everybody's on their mobile 24-7, and um, it's just so convenient. Other good news today, at last Sony's got some backbone. You'll recall that the interview was scheduled for a Christmas Day release in theatres nationwide, and then Sony turned yellow belly and cancelled it after hackers threatened it. And, uh, you know, of course, they breached their servers and released 32,000 private email messages written by Sony executives. So um, I guess there's going to be a lot of executives still afraid of the next deluge of material that's going to be released, although they're threatening to take action against any broadcaster that distributes it. So that'll be interesting to see what happens. But Sony Pictures CEO Michael Linton... I mean, he looked stupid when he responded to the president's call, I reckon. He said his company didn't cave to the pressure of hackers. Really? How does he work that out? He said the film's release was cancelled because theatres came to Sony one by one and, of course, left it no choice. This, of course, is absolute unadulterated rubbish as a plethora of non-chain theatres were preparing to show that were prepared to show the movie. So today, Sony Pictures is releasing the controversial movie in theatres after all on Christmas Day. So what was absolutely impossible two days ago, ah, now it's possible. Hmm. Several smaller chains are beginning to unveil the news via social media. Um, KC-based that's Kansas City-based B&B Theatres, which is 408 screens in eight states. They're going to play it. And um, Michael Linton now says that um, we have never given up on releasing the interview. And we're excited that our movie will be in theatres on Christmas Day. Yeah, I betcha. <laughs> Jeez. At the same time, we're continuing our efforts to secure more platforms and more theatres so that this movie reaches the largest possible audience. You know, they would have been much smarter just to put it out on video on demand or give it to one of the distributors to get it out there en masse and avoid all this embarrassing situation that they've got themselves into. But just to show his hypocrisy, he says, we're proud to make it available to the public and have, had, and have stood up to those who attempted to suppress free speech. God, strength. I hope he doesn't believe in God because you're not going to go to heaven. Now, Sony's obviously felt a lot of pressure after President Obama stated Friday that the company's decision to cancel the, move, the showing was a mistake. What I was laying out as a principle I think this country has to abide by, Obama said, we believe in free speech. You know, you can't allow every bloody ratbag out there who doesn't agree with you to threaten you and change what you believe and what you show and what you allow the American people to see. It's pathetic. We can't have censorship by outsiders. You know, we're a free country, we're a democratic country. People, as long as they don't hurt anybody else, can do and see and say what the hell they want. And screw people like bloody um, all these dictators around the world. Who cares? 
You know, you take North Korea. The bloody joint's broke. They can't feed anybody. Very shortly, they're not going to be able to pay the army. And as soon as they can't pay the army, their whole ball game's over. So why should we kowtow to these weak pussies around the world? It's like Russia. We stood up to Russia. Look at them. Putin's down on his knees begging for a saucer of milk. You know, we shouldn't, we, we've got to not put up with these people. So while there's been a number of suggestions that Sony deliver this movie digitally, the New York Post, while it's not the most reliable of sources, is saying that Sony is considering running it on its Crackle platform. But so far, Sony hasn't mentioned Crackle. So Sony Pictures has got egg on its face. And to stop further damage, they must get widespread distribution sooner rather than later. Now, a, a global survey conducted during October 2014 illustrates what consumers are looking for in a smartwatch and whether they intend to buy one. So what do you think about it? And do you intend to buy one? In a survey of over 2,000 people who tended to be young, affluent professionals, which is ostensibly the target market for a smartwatch, the main findings were that firstly, the smartwatch only appeals to a minority of potential purchasers. So in the main, in general, people aren't the least bit interested in smartwatches. Only 20% of respondents who said they planned to buy a new I planned to buy a new phone in the next six months said they're interested in buying a smartwatch. So 20% of people are going to buy a new phone in the next six months. Secondly, it was found that Apple's done a much better job than their competitors in selling the smartwatch. Prospective iPhone buyers are significantly more interested in a companion watch than are Android purchasers. About 31% of those who said they would buy an iPhone in the next six months plan to buy a smartwatch, more than double the proportion among those buying Android phones. Now, almost 40% of likely smartwatch buyers told us that the most important benefit of a smartwatch is its ability to funnel phone notifications, information and other content if users happen to be away from their smartphone. Another 25% say they already wear a watch and the added functionality of a connected watch doesn't really appeal to them, but health and fitness tracking may be of interest. But 51% of those who are not interested in smartwatches Say so the reasons they wouldn't buy them is that there's no killer app. A majority of people just don't see the point in a smartwatch. A distant second, only 13% of respondents said they just don't wear watches, smart or dumb. <laughs> they just don't wear them. So until consumers can see a clear reason why smartwatches will improve their lives and their productivity the smartwatch ca uh, category is going to remain very small. Of course, the next six months could bring about new applications for smartwatches generally and possibly the Apple Watch in particular. Apple's got a whole bunch of stuff circling around that would probably make um, great additions to a smartwatch. But it's got a long way to go before it's seen as an essential consumer electronics device. 
And besides that, every smartwatch I've seen is still very clunky and very ugly. So I, for one, am not buying one. Now, with more than 330 people... <laughs> 330 million people using LinkedIn to use their to list their resumes and find jobs, find new hires. They have an enormous amount of data about the current job market. So 330 million people using LinkedIn for jobs. So to close out 2014, the company released a list of the top skills people who got hired this year had listed on their profiles and that recruiters had searched for the most. So are you ready for it? You want to write it down? You're thinking about going to college? You want to know what to learn, what to study? Well, here's a clue. The top 10 skills that got people jobs this last year. Firstly, statistics analysis and data mining. I understand that. We've got, um, we've got big data. Everybody's switching to big data, Internet of Things, statistics analysis and data mining, top of the list, understand. Secondly, middleware and integration software. Again, understand. The third skill that got people jobs this year, storage systems and management, and that's going to be very important in the near future. Fourth, network and information security. Again, incredibly important, particularly in view of all the hacking and everything that's been going on over the last few years. Number five, the five most important skill that got people jobs this year, SEO and SEM marketing. The sixth most important skill, Business intelligence. The seventh, mobile development. The eighth, web architecture and development framework. The ninth, algorithm design. And the tenth, Perl, Python and Ruby programming language. Wow. All very heavy in technology. Because... All the changes in the world are revolving around technology. So um, if you're currently doing an arts degree, well, I think probably in five years' time, you're probably going to be one of the most highly educated people in the unemployment line. Either that or you'll be parking cars or working as a waiter. And I'm sure an arts degree is very helpful if you're serving up burgers. You're listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business. We're here to assist entrepreneurs to become successful. So if you have a question about any aspect of business, please email me at bob at bobpritchard.com and we'll answer it on air or we'll email you directly. Make sure you subscribe to my um, monthly newsletter, which is sent out to over 16,000 Business executives in 60-plus countries every month. So go to the website, bobpritchard.com, and sign up now. You're listening to Voice America Business, and I'll be back two days before Christmas 
after this short break with my guest, Hartford Brown. He's an attorney who represents entrepreneurs and privately owned companies on a wide range of advice on intellectual property. He's a great guy and unbelievably smart on protecting your intellectual property. And this is one of the most, if not the most, important aspect of setting up a business today. And it's a must listen to interviews with lots of valuable information for entrepreneurs. So if you're thinking about ducking off to the bathroom or popping up the street for a pint of milk or putting the kids to bed, forget about it. Wait till after the interview. This is Bob Pritchard live in Los Angeles, and I'll be back with Hartford Brown in just a moment. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show and the segment of the show where we interview people who've achieved great success and who are making a real difference in the world of business, particularly for entrepreneurs. Because this program is all about entrepreneurs. And one of the major concerns that entrepreneurs have is how to protect their intellectual property. A couple of weeks ago on this program, I discussed how a number of entrepreneurs approach us about raising funds for them and yet are absolutely paranoid about telling you anything about their business because they fear that someone is going to steal their IP. So we periodically get requests from people asking to have an IP attorney on the program and after an email from Steve Grant who is the CEO of 8Shot in Adelaide, Australia who has a great project which incidentally at the moment I'm not at liberty to talk to you about I decided that it was high time that we brought in an expert to discuss how to protect IP. So my guest today is Hartford Brown or hearty to his friends, a Los Angeles-based attorney who represents entrepreneurs and privately owned companies on a wide range of advice on intellectual property. Importantly, another area that he specialises in, which many people neglect to think about, is advising entrepreneurs on how to structure companies to retain IP rights when they seek investors. 
Hi, Hardy. How are you? Welcome to the Bob Richard Radio Show on Voice America Business. Hi, Bob. I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. How are you doing? I'm I'm terrific, mate. Since we spoke a few days ago, I'm I'm really good. Now, excellent. When we talk about IP protection, we talk about patents, we talk about trademarks and service marks, copyright, trade secrets, and probably other. There's probably others as well that I don't know about. So let's start there. Let's begin by assuming that our listeners are not very well versed in protecting IP. So why don't we go through each of them one at a time. Firstly, what is a patent? How long does it take to get one? And how long does the protection last? That's the first part of the question. (laughs) And the second part of the question is, we often hear about a product being patent pending. What does that mean and how much protection does that give you? Great. Okay, let's tackle patents. Um, in possibly simplest terms, a patent is a registered protection of an invention. Uh, most frequently in this day and age, we uh, that we associate patents with new technology or electronic programming or with pharmaceuticals. Uh, but a patent can also be a process or an improvement of a prior invention. Uh, and obtaining a patent essentially gives you a property right that you can exploit as the patent owner. You can market the product, you can sell it, you can license the patent to someone else to exploit, or do whatever you want. Now in the US anyway, getting a patent generally takes 18 months to three years uh, once you file your application with the patent office. And it's good for approximately, it's good for exactly 20 years so long as you file updated documents and you pay fees at the required times to the patent office. Right. Um, now, patent pending, uh, means that you're claiming a right to the invention and are assuming the patent office will grant you the patent and you filed the patent application already. But it can only be, that phrase, patent pending, can only be used in limited circumstances uh, and it does not really give you the full protection you will have once you get a registered patent. But essentially what it does is it puts others on notice that you are seeking protection for your idea or your invention and you consider it simply a matter of time until the patent is issued and you will protect your rights. Now, does the priority work on a when you lodge the application basis? I mean, if you lodged one this week for product XYZ and I lodge one in a month's time for a product XYZ that's very similar, does my patent application get priority simply because I was in there first? Not necessarily. No, the, the, the patent office will, and the courts, by the way, if you end up in litigation, will also look at first use, first invention, differences in language, uh, prior, there's a possibility neither one of you gets the patent based on prior patents. Um, so there are all sorts of factors that can go into priority and, and filing first. But certainly you don't want to delay filing um, just in case something happens down the road. Okay, you mentioned in that in your first couple of statements you can lodge an improvement to an existing patent. Does that existing patent have to be yours? No, but then you have to deal with the rights of the, the prior patent owner. Um, but it can be yours. and In fact, that's a uh, common trick in the United States anyway with pharmaceuticals is that the patent owners on a new pharmaceutical or a pharmaceutical that's been around almost 20 years will then change it slightly and file a new patent so that they can extend their protection for this drug that they've spent millions and millions of dollars researching and then marketing. Okay. Now... Is a patent universal, or do you have to take out separate pl- patents in every one of the 194 countries on the planet? Uh, neither. <laughs> it's not universal. 
um, but there are uh, and there are patent offices in countries all around the world. Uh, but for international protection, you don't have to file in every single country. Uh, there are treaties and uh, agreements throughout the world so that you can do some bulk uh, filings. And there are services that help the inventor or usually the inventor's lawyer file internationally in a variety of countries all at once so that it's not such an immense undertaking, uh, whether it be time, effort, or money. So if, if, let's say you register a patent in Europe and in North America and Australia and Japan or whatever, and somebody in Bolivia decides to, um, I'm just picking Bolivia, so it might, it might be inside some treaty, but nevertheless, just some country that's not in a treaty, somebody in that uh, country produces the product against your patent. Can they sell that product in countries where you have a patent, or are they prohibited from doing that? Well, I'm sorry to give you a, a typical lawyer answer, but the answer is they might be able to. Uh, it depends not only on what treaties that country is, uh, is registered with, but also what their internal laws say. Uh, you did mention Japan, but Japan is one of the countries where sure. oftentimes if you don't register there, they're not going to help you out. Uh, so you better register in Japan or they're going to allow companies inside Japan to, to uh, compete with your patent oftentimes. When they do produce the product though, if you've got a patent in the United States, can, can they sell that product in the United States? Well, they'll certainly try oftentimes, but you, know, you have remedies available to try to okay. get the government to ban import. Right. So how does a trademark protect you and how do you get one? Well, in the U.S., you get a trademark through the Patent and Trademark Office, um, and a trademark is uh, a mark or logo used to identify goods or services as being from a particular source. So it can protect your name and the logo you use in connection with goods and services. Uh, generally, a trademark or a mark is a word or a phrase, maybe a symbol or design, or, or a combination of any of those, which would identify, say, Nike. So the word Nike would be the trademark, and the swoosh design uh, may be a separate trademark registered by Nike, but both would indicate the source of the product that bear the marks, in that case, Nike. So you need to trademark both your name and the product? Your name and, oh, the, and the logo. And your, and your, sorry, and your logo. Correct. Correct. Okay, and, gotcha. And, that, make, and that makes perfect sense. Sure. And in the United States with the Patent Office, um, that can take generally 10 to 18 months absent uh, challenges by others in the trademark office at the registration stage. Okay. Now, in the U.S. anyway, we, rec we recognize both registered trademarks and non-registered trademarks. So when you see, if you see Nike with a little R generally in a circle yep. next to it, yep. that means they've registered it with the patent office, or the patent and trademark office. Right. But if you see the TM symbol in the U.S., that means that it's an unregistered mark you have not gone to the patent office, but you do intend to protect your mark. So okay. if, um, if, it, if I had Hardy Brown TM and you start marketing a similar good uh, under the same name, uh, I can still sue you and enforce my mark if I can prove various things, uh, but I don't get all of the remedies at the end of the litigation that I would get if it's registered. Okay, and the best way to... Um establish your bona fides of owning the product is to use it in use the trademark in advertising or in some sort of material that's out there in the general public so that 
it's seen as um, um, being used, right? Absolutely. You, as long as you use it in commerce right. uh, and you use the, the little TM or certainly once you have the R, uh, absolutely use that in connection with the mark you intend to protect. Okay, service mark. What is that? Well, it's a, it's it's a related item to a trademark, it, but it's identifying the service rather than the product or its provider. So it could be uh, a company that offers services. Uh, my firm's name is Clientins PC, and if we we wanted to uh, brand it as a service mark, we provide legal services to you. That sort of thing. So okay. it's very similar to a trademark, uh, and frankly, a lot of people don't even know about a service mark when that's the proper thing for them to be registering for rather than a trademark. Okay. Copyright is also an extremely important prote protection. What is it? And again, how do you obtain copyright protection? Okay, well, a copyright generally protects creative works of an author, and that can be a wide variety of things. That can be a song... Uh, a book or other writing, or can also, in, at least in the United States, again, that can be blueprints for a building. And an architect would have a copyright automatically in his or her blueprints. Uh, getting a copyright in the States is generally easier than uh, obtaining a registered patent or trademark. Um, and instead of the U.S. government deciding to put it all in one place, they have a separate office for copyrights called the U.S. Copyright Office. Yeah. Um, and, and it's generally much simpler, easier to do uh, or to apply for and get than it is for a trademark or a patent, as I said. So if you're a software developer out there, would you copyright, can you copyright code? Is that like a written word? Uh, code, you usually want to, yeah, you want to look at that and it's a case by case, but you, you want to consider copyright or patent. Okay, okay. The, the one protection that really confuses me and I hear about it a lot and, and seemingly more and more is trade secret you know I often have people saying that you know the major corporations troll patent applications looking for great ideas and you know when they find them they can modify them and steal them uh, I've been told a lot that you're better off not patenting something and keeping it trade secret so what really is trade secret does that logic make any sense? Sort of. <laughs> um, I, I don't <laughs> love that idea, and I would I would probably not advise a client to do that. It sounds like what what the the logic is um, is that if you have this process and you want to keep it confidential, you keep it a trade secret because once you apply for the patent, you have to disclose the idea in your patent filing to determine sure. whether it's patentable. Um, Whereas a trade secret, you don't have to register anywhere. Uh, the, the legal definition of a trade secret here in California, and this is fairly uniform uh, throughout the United States, is any formula or practice or process or design or even a compilation of information which is not, which is not generally known to the public, uh, which can provide an economic advantage. But there's also a second key to it, and that is that you have to... Uh, take reasonable steps to keep the information confidential to get trade secret protection. So not only do you not disclose it publicly, but a lot of times you don't even want to disclose the trade secret to employees that don't need to know it. And doing things in this day and age like password protection, uh, even within the company to get to the trade secrets, is a really good idea uh, to really show that you've undertaken the steps necessary to keep this information private.
couldn't couldn't somebody just do a run round somebody a little devious couldn't somebody just do a run round trade secret by backdating a whole bunch of letters and things and putting them in their files saying you know we were working on this in 2004 they could try uh, <laughs> uh, I, I think though that in this day and age that's getting harder and harder to do uh, when you're in litigation now you don't just look for hard documents you look for the electronic history of those documents yeah um, so in these disputes I'd be asking for the computer hard drive which would show me when this document was created and frankly every hard drive since then so if I can find the ghost of the image on any one of your hard drives showing that you created it in 2011 though you're claiming 2004 that can blow your argument out of the water okay it's also a common belief among people that I speak to and this has been a sort of common belief for years and years and years that if you modify, modify a patent or a copyright or a trademark by 30% or more then you can circumvent the protection. Is that true or false? Yes. <laughs> I don't think there Bloody is magic formula. Answers. Jeez. I know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't think there is a magic formula. I don't think you can say it's 20% or 30% or 80%. Right. Uh, and I think that in considering this, there's a two-step analysis. And, and the first one is, can you get the registration? Can you get that patent or that right. trademark, for instance? And then second, can you protect it in litigation. So the first step is is uh, the registration, and if you alter a pre-existing patent, uh, first of all, it may be an improvement, so you may be able to get it that way. But secondly, it may be that uh, the examiner within the patent office uh, allows it, or someone nobody challenges it, so you get through. But more likely, and these people are really smart and good at what they do, they'll often come back to you with questions or clarifications or tell you, look, we don't like this part, we think it's too close, so that they can try to issue a patent which is not, uh, which they don't consider infringing on the other patent. Now, once you get that mark or that patent, now you have the courts. And even if you have a registered trademark, for instance, if I think that it's confusingly similar to my trademark, which pre-exists yours, I can still sue you infringing on my trademark and saying that you've had you've gotten a registration from the government is not an absolute defense to my claims so oh, wow. okay. that goes back to your 30 percent is it enough or is it not enough to alter it by 30 percent well that's going to be decided by the judge or the jury okay so the ones that we've mentioned uh, we've we've mentioned um, patents we've mentioned um, trademarks service marks copyright trade secret are there any that I've missed any protections that you can use that I've missed no the, I think the, those are all of the types of intellectual property an entrepreneur or business owner would be interested in there there's additional analysis though and that's you want to be considering how what your intellectual property is and how do you protect it from day one you want to do it in right. forming your company in licensing it in your employment contracts with your employees, with independent contractor agreements, and the like. So you want to consider things like work for hire and pre-existing inventions of employees and the like. Uh, so it's not just registration where you have to worry about it. It's at every step in your business. You have to be thinking about intellectual property. That's great advice. So if one wants to get a patent, for example, when I walk into Hartford Brown's legal office to get the process started, apart from having a suitcase full of money, what do I need to bring into you? 
Well, another suitcase full of money. <laughs> and no, I'm just kidding. Uh, well, I, I would say a few things. You need patience because right. these are, you know, business people want things done immediately. Sure. And the government works at its own pace. Um, so I think patience is one. I think also the more homework you've done regarding your intellectual property and similar intellectual property, uh, the more homework you've done on that before you meet with your lawyer, the better off you are because it just means less time and less money to research it. Uh, although I'm sure the lawyer, you know, in most cases the lawyer is going to want to go do his or her own uh, supplemental research and that's something you should work out with your lawyer. Uh, I would also suggest that you have questions ready. How long is this going to take? What is the process? How do you work? How do you communicate with me? All of those sorts of things are important. That are important to you. Have ready when you go in because you're interviewing the lawyer, uh, and that the lawyer is performing a service for you. So you should be comfortable with that person just as you would with an employee. And then I would say, be prepared to make the determination: Is this lawyer a good fit for me or not? He or she may be eminently qualified, but he or she may not be a great fit for you and your business. And and so I think you should be prepared to take everything that's said with that in mind and whether it's going to help you get to that goal and having a good working relationship with your lawyer. Okay. So I've got a, I've got a new invention. I want to patent it. Um, what sort of costs are involved here? Um, to get a patent in the United States, for example, excluding legal fees, what, what sort of Excluding costs? legal fees, uh, it's a couple thousand dollars. Uh, including legal fees. <laughs> including legal fees, it, it, it varies greatly, again, and I, I apologize again for another lawyer answer, but the complexity, how much homework you've done ahead of time, how well written out and thought out your invention is, and then once you get to the patent office, it's a little bit out of everybody's control as to how much it's going to cost because the patent examiner may have a lot of questions or clarifications or a lot of work to do with the patent office, and a competitor may challenge your application in the patent office. Right. So even if you prevail, obviously that's expensive. So it can be tens of thousands of dollars. Okay. So if I if I want to protect myself all around the planet, what sort of ballpark number do I need to have in mind? A hundred thousand dollars? Would that protect me around the world? It really varies case by case, but I don't think that's an unreasonable initial budget. And I think that once you meet with your lawyer, that the lawyer understanding the idea and where you really need to protect your idea, they can help you develop a budget before you get too far along in the in the process. Okay, this is this I think is a very important question. Why is it important to have IP advice before you get investors involved? Why is that well, important? Sure. Several of our clients are developers of an idea, whether it's an, um, a patent or a mark or, or a copyright. Um, and if our client is the one who's invented the patent or the process or has written the movie and then needs investors to bring that product to market, uh, there are several approaches you can take. The simplest way is put it in a company and bring investors in as your co-owners and getting loans and the like. But in some cases, our, inventor, our, invest, our clients who are the in inventors do not want the investors to own any intellectual property. They just want to help them exploit it to a predetermined point. Right. So we work with our clients ahead of time to determine which, which way to go with this uh, it would be. And sometimes that is setting up two entities, the first of which is owned only by the invest, inventor, pardon me, 
Uh, and that company owns the IP and licenses the IP to a second company. And the investors actually buy into that second company, which only has a license agreement for the intellectual property. Yeah, that's and that way, if there are problems, you can still ultimately try to control your intellectual property down the road. Yeah. Do you find that most investors, or in my experience, most investors want to be involved in the company that has the IP? That's true, too. Um, and depending on how much money they're bringing to the table, you can always make exceptions as well. Yeah, so there's sure. greater flexibility. If I'm going to come in and give you, say, 50% of what you of what you need to bring a product to market, then maybe you let me in that company that owns the IP, but if your neighbor is going to give you $100, maybe you only want him or her in the one with the license. Right, right. Yeah, that's, that's the ideal. It's just somehow very hard to do once you get sitting across a negotiating table with an investor. It, that suddenly becomes a hard one. Well, it certainly does not work all the time, and that's why we work to determine ahead of time what's going to work here, and also with enough flexibility so that if you do get a whale investor down the road, there's enough flexibility to do what he, she, or it demands, which yeah. is participating yeah, in the ownership of the IP. Right. Hartford, thank you very much for being on the program. It's been great to speak with you. Um, you know, I'd be the last to say that lawyers are overpaid, but um, when you leave the building, could you please take your Lamborghini and... <laughs> money kidding. <laughs> no, it's a, but it is an expensive exercise to protect um, your intellectual property, but it is something that if, if you're building, you really believe in, in, in the product and uh, you want to make a lifetime... Um, career out of it or you want to sell it on to somebody you have to make sure that it's well and truly protected now if you'd Absolutely. like to know more about how to protect your IP you can email me at bob at bobpritchard.com and I will introduce you directly to Hartford he's a hell of a guy and after you get to know him for a while he'll let you call him Hearty this is Bob Pritchard and you're listening to the Bob Pritchard radio show on Voice America Business and I'll be back with you in just a moment. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking. Absolutely no bullshit business show. And we're coming to you from the wonderful city of Los Angeles. This is such a happening town. I really love it here. Um, and this is a segment of the show where we bring you emails from our listeners all around the world. It's incredible that despite the different cultures and the different political persuasions and the different rules in various countries, um, emails are nearly always applicable to anybody in any business in any country. And uh, that's what makes it so great. 
Um, Los Angeles is becoming a real hub for innovation. There is a massive growth in startups and funding in Los Angeles. And uh, so if you're thinking about coming to the States from overseas and most people think they've got to go to Silicon Valley, you don't have to. You can do very well here in Los Angeles and there's a plenty of money around for startups. You know, I came here 27 years ago for a two-year stint and I'm still here and loving it. Uh, first email today is from Adrian Morgan of Fort Wayne, Indiana. Never been to Fort Wayne. Thought about it a couple of times but never quite made it. Dear Bob, I listened to your program last week and I certainly fall into the category of being run off my feet trying to do everything I can to keep my small business afloat. That's a pretty common story that we're nearly all very familiar with. Adrian goes on to say, I think you were spot on when you said that we simply can't be good at everything. This means I spend much more time doing things than a professional would. I guess he means that it takes him a lot longer to do things that it would, than it would take a professional. And, of course, the results aren't as good either. The problem when you're running your own small business is that you really can't afford to make mistakes. I also don't have a lot of money to go hiring people either as employees or as consultants. Do you have any ideas? Well, that's something that we all face. I know I've been through it myself several times. Um, Adrian... As you've realised, the biggest challenge is that you really can't be good at everything. And secondly, you don't have time to be good at everything. And um, even if you were good at it, you couldn't do it. I've spent a lot of time in marketing sports and even the superstar champions have a number of coaches and advisors. That's um, interesting that even in... Uh, when I was involved with Evander Holyfield, even though you would say boxing is a a one-person sport, the team around Evander was about 10, 12 people. So, um, you know, he had fitness coaches and, and um, nutrition coaches and all sorts of various people. And it took all that to make him a champion and to keep him a champion. So if somebody is the best in the world, still needs a bunch of advisors, then you and I certainly do. So... The, the key's got to be to build a team of people around you, share your passion and your vision for the business. Now, that's very hard because it's really easy to piss people off so they lose that passion. Often, you know, there may be somebody who's already done what you're trying to do or at least worked in the same space and who can give you tips or can give you contacts Um can maybe change your attitude a bit in various areas, can lead you to shortcuts perhaps so that you don't have to learn lessons the hard way. It's very, one of the things that slows people down is when you make a mistake or you have to really pivot and change your direction and and it really disrupts the way you think and uh, your efficiency and in fact everything about it. Another way is to form a, you know, you form a board of directors or a group of advisors, but you've got to meet with them regularly. You've got to be totally open about what you're doing. It's got to be a everything on the table uh, situation. 
so that they really understand where you're at. Even if you make a giant screw-up, you've got to be able to say, look, this is what it, I know I should have spoken with you guys first, but I didn't, and this is the mess I'm now in. Somebody please help me get out of it. How do, what do I do next? Um, so for that, it's got to be people that um, have your best interests and the best interests of the company at heart. And those people, they're not that easy to find because, um, you know, unless they've got some sort of vested interest in the business, why should they? And I've often said before on this program that in the early stage of the business, you've got to invest in legals and accounting. And as we just heard from Hartford, you know, you can be up for a lot of money to protect your intellectual property. And if you want to protect it around the world, it could be $100,000. So how you set up your business in relation to the structure of it, your partners and your IP, that might ultimately determine whether or not your business is viable or even a, a success or is even viable. So I would suggest the very first thing is to get yourself um, some mentors and uh, be perfectly open with them and bounce off them regularly. And uh, I think you'll save yourself a lot of grief. I've always had a group of mentors around me. I've, I've um, even going back probably 30 years, I had mentors that I bounced off constantly and uh, they've been a huge help to me and most of them uh, guys that have been successful and been through the startup stage, set up their own businesses, gone through the same anguish that we all go through, and have come out the end of the tunnel very well. So they can give you absolutely invaluable advice. I've often, um, I've often, you know, some people set up a board of directors and then some advisors. And I would I would suggest that if you're um, if you're really serious about building a, a good business, then you have a board of directors, four or five people, um, specialising in different skill sets that um, all have a vested interest in the company succeeding, um, and then have some advisors that um, you can use to bounce off less regularly and. Um, and are probably just paid a minor fee or given a small um, percentage, half a percent, quarter of a percent, tenth of a percent. And if it works out well, they come out all right just for a bit of advice. Adrian, thank you for your email. It's something that we all face. And we'll send you out a copy of my new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets. It's not quite new, but it's my recent book, How to Blitz Your Competition, and that's available at all good bookstores and at Amazon. In fact, I've got a few orders for it during the week. I don't know why. Um, but, um, you know, we get we get a steady number of orders come through, but uh, not usually not directly to me. But this week we had quite a number. My last email today is from overseas. I love to get emails from overseas because that shows that people are listening. We've got listeners in about... 50-odd countries, which is great. And this one is from Juan Covas of Madrid, Spain. And Juan writes, Dear Bob, thanks for your show. I have a small business with just 10 employees and I would like to know what advantage is there to using cloud computing? Okay. One, cloud computing allows all of a small business's critical transactions, everything. 
as well as your economic e-commerce and website traffic data to be accessed at any time from anywhere with the proper application. So a program such as the New Tech Advantage is extremely beneficial. That's New Tech, N-E-W-T-E-K, New Tech, N-E-W. T-E-K, Advantage, is extremely beneficial to small business owners like you because it allows you to see your real-time business information from any computer, any smartphone, or any tablet, any place, any time. So cloud computing allows you to spend less time dealing with administrative matters and more time selling and servicing customers. It also gives you more control and hopefully less surprises. All of your key business stats and metrics are available in real time. Small businesses can make more decisions and more informed decisions faster and never be out of touch with most important business data. Having real-time information also means better and more profitable decisions. Real-time information, it also means that your key business management data is only seconds away and wherever you happen to be. Um, cloud computing also leads to decreased, co- decreased cost and expense of an IT department. Everything's available at your fingerprints in the cloud. So one, cloud computing is a way of the future, saves you time and money, and makes your information on your business management data available at any time, no matter where in the world you are. A copy of Biz- Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets is on its way to you. Remember, we're here to help small business succeed. So I hope you have a fantastic Christmas or Hanukkah or Kwanzaa. Rest up for next week because 2015 will be sensational for everybody in small business and every entrepreneur. And remember, if you're serious about being successful, this is the place to come every week at the same time. This is Bob Pritchard. And next week... I hope you join us again. Thank you. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.